0: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is the Future of Mobility and Manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in the automotive and industrial manufacturing industries and supporting ecosystems, and help them move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: If you want to help make the world a better place, then it's time to run and drive, if you can, with the Game Changers. And this is where the best are running and driving. Let's check out the buzz on the street today. I have a very interesting quote from SupplyChainDigital.com. And I'm going to introduce a word that is new to me that is the topic of our show. So listen up. It's a long quote, but we're going to set the stage here. So the quote is, there's been huge changes in the world of manufacturing over the last few decades, and nothing has affected the industry more than consumer demand and expectation. Okay, I think we all know that. In 2018, the gap widened even further between customer expectations and after sales service realities, which served as a catalyst for manufacturers to make major changes and begin the shift toward, wait for it, here's the big word, servitization. Servitization. You might spell it with a, an S. S-A-T-I-O-N or Z-Z-A-T-I-O-N, depending on what side of the pond you're on. Manufacturers have evolved from selling products to selling the outcome or the value that products deliver and guaranteeing product uptime. This focus on proactive repair prevention is a big change from past break-fix models as it means the onus has shifted from the end user to the original equipment manufacturer or make sure products are fully functioning. The challenge is that the transformation does not happen overnight. But the benefits of servitization are incredibly attractive once the shift is made. So that's the quote. So let me tell you a little bit more before I introduce my two esteemed guests. Industrial manufacturers were shifting toward new business models before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. We know that, but now it's even more important to ensure the relationship with their customers does not end at the time of delivery. That's the key. New business models that position industrial manufacturers as service providers will ensure ongoing ongoing revenue streams, as well as a deeper and more profitable customer interaction. These models include active monitoring, predictive services, and even pay-by-outcome services. What a concept. So today, as we are seeing the world trying step-by-step, inch-by-inch, moment-by-moment to recover from the COVID-19 shutdown that affected everybody everywhere, we're going to ask Michael Larner at ABI Research. Welcome, Michael. And Ankit Sharma at SAP. Welcome, Ankit. How manufacturers can embrace the concept of servitization as a key pillar of growth. Welcome, welcome. Again, I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very happy to be here. Shout Shout out to Judy Cubas at SAP for sponsoring the series and to Deborah Petrara at ABI Research for helping us engage Michael for this show. So, Michael Larner, you're up first. Please introduce yourself to the world. Michael, who are you? What do you do? And what's the importance of servitization to you?
2: Yes, thank you very much, Bonnie, for the opportunity to speak with you today. Um, so, I'm principal analyst at um, ABI Research covering all things industrial and manufacturing. So that's everything around a lot of other buzzwords like uh, industry 4.0, smart factories, and the like. Um, been looking at um, digital transformation in a lot of different contexts there uh, prior to joining ABI. So things like uh, public services, how they're being digitized, smart cities, building resilience. And the really a top topics uh, we see now is all things like a digital taking over in healthcare and the finance industry. And furthermore, in my background also really about how Digital's taking over the world. And as we can see now, this um, t- type of platforms for advertising, so not just uh, on the radio, but now we're moving towards other platforms such as podcasts. Servitization, really interesting topic. So instead of um, manufacturers, man producing a machine, selling it to a customer, walking away and coming back when it runs out and it's 10 years old, coming towards now, really being engaged week by week, day by day in how their their pieces of the machine are actually performing and going to improve the operations for their customers. So looking forward to getting this conversation going.
1: Thank you. And I have a question for you, Michael. I detect Mm -hmm. a British accent and I want to know, am I saving or do you say it? Servitization? Servitization? Is there a way of pronouncing it that you prefer? Because the word is brand new to me. How do you say it? I (laughs) know.
2: We often have this when my spell checker goes up with the S's and Z's uh, writing this sort of stuff. So yeah, I say I'll go with um, tization, but uh, that's just me.
1: That's only (laughs) three three syllables. I like it when we had our prep call. I I suggested your prediction at the end of the show might be, we'll scrap that word and just say Larner. It'll just be the Larner process. And I thought that would be, it could be, well, for Ankit, it could be the Sharma process. You you two could battle that out. Thank you, Michael. Nice to have you on the show. Ankit Sharma, pleasure to welcome you. Please introduce yourself to our global audience. What do you do?
3: Thank you, thank you for having me, Bonnie. It's a pleasure to be here and hello to you, Michael. I agree with you. That's how I also pronounce it, servitization. So we are on the same (laughs) page there. (laughs) So, uh, all right, my name is Ankit Sharma. I am part of the industry and customer advisory team at SAP, specifically focused on the discrete manufacturing sector. Uh, I live in Chicago and I've been with SAP for about seven years now. Uh, To talk about my current role, it uh, really caters centers around enabling new areas of growth for the industrial manufacturing companies. Typically, uh, I would work to create a new process map or identify gaps in the existing processes that prevent uh, companies from transitioning to new growth areas like servitization itself. Um, For me, one of the key focus areas for the last several several years has been really trying to bring outcome-based business models also known as subscription oriented business models Mm -hmm. also known as equipment as a service business models i know there are a lot of akas there uh, but clearly uh, outcome-based business models is one advanced service offering that most of the manufacturers agree has a potential to bring the next phase of growth for them Um, and to that end uh, i have been fortunate to work with some front-runner companies visit their plans see their processes in action Uh, to be able to identify what needs changing, you know, what resources need to be brought in to really enable uh, enable them in the new service-oriented model space. So this has been an exciting journey for me. Uh, Prior to this role, I was an advanced analytics practitioner where I worked with a lot of manufacturing companies to create data-driven models in the areas of sales and marketing, maintenance and aftermarket service. So this was really the starting point of my journey in the industrial manufacturing space. And now I'm happy to be leading the outcome-based business model solution area for SAP.
1: Thank you, Ankit. Very, very interesting. Has there been a? We talk about change management. We talk about paradigm shifts and how companies do business. We talk about fluidity and pivoting and agility. Is is this a mindset shift? I'll ask you, and then I'll ask Michael before we get to your opening quotes. Uh, Is this a mindset mindset shift where people have to say, "What do you mean outcome based? I have a machine. I'm selling it. It'll it'll go for a certain amount of time. Built in obsolescence. What a terrible thought. We used to say that about washing machines and dryers and stoves and all that. going to wear out and you're going to have to buy a new one, get over it on the consumer side. Do you think this is a shift or is this, has this become accepted practice now, Ankit, uh, in terms of companies saying, yeah, we have to do more than just sell the machine. We have to sell what it is going to do for somebody or how many hours it will be productive or the, the various ways they can use it that will produce other outcomes for them. Is this a, a brand new way of thinking or is it pretty much business as usual by now?
3: Uh, Bonnie, that's a great question and you're spot on. I think this is a big mindset shift that, that needs to happen to really bring these business models out in the market. And let, let me just extrapolate on that. Let me explain that a bit. Um, if, if you look at incumbents, or if you look at how the traditional, traditionally the industrial manufacturing business has been run, it has been more about selling the capital equipment,
2: mm-hmm.
3: getting paid upfront, right? So So as you can imagine, uh, you know the companies have been doing this process over and over and over again for years and years which has become sort of their culture and suddenly now we come up with this new sort of a business model where we are promising the outcomes from those machines right so so you know you can imagine uh, the sales force the service people, you know, they have to really orient themselves in a slightly different way to uh, get accustomed to this new way of doing business, the new commercialization models and whatnot, right? So that's why, I mean, I've been a great proponent um, of the fact that there has to be a mindset shift. There has to be a new way of working. There has to be a new way of looking at the market, and there has to be a lot of risk-oriented models that need to be brought in to really execute this business model.
1: Thank you very much, Ankit. I appreciate your indulging my question. I, Michael, what's your thought? Mindset shift? That's a tongue twister for me.
2: Yes. Um, I Well, just to add to what uh, Ankit was talking about is the fact that one of the, I think we're at the transition in the manufacturing sector whereby you've got a lot of pit, the baby boomer generation rapidly reaching retirement. You've also got the um, millennials joining the workforce and now new terminate gen Z which is uh, I don't know um, a lot of marketing speak but, but more importantly though these guys are both um, being employed those sort of uh, new sort of um, segments in this in the community in the in consumer space coming into the workforce with new ideas about technology new ideas about how doing things and that's where these sort of like plans start to be resonating Probably not as quickly as you see in someone like a Facebook or a Google, but actually in some of these more traditional smokestack industries, they can actually have the opportunity to really make their mark and really learn learn from the experience guys and then really make their mark as these um, companies really change their business models going forward.
1: Thank you. Thank you both. I realize that was not in our agenda, but it was just (laughs) on my mind because we like to relate. We talk about industrial manufacturing. We're talking about machines. We're talking about outcomes, but we really need to relate it back to people. And it's a people thing. Who gets it? Who wants it? Who makes that change happen? Who embraces it? Who resists it? Who implements it? Who accepts it? Who promotes it? All of those good, I'm running out of verbs, I'm a human thesaurus. But anyway, it's just an interesting concept of where does this come from. So thank you very, very much both. Now we'll get back to our program is scheduled uh, by the way if you're just tuning in this is if you're on Zoom well we're on Zoom and I can see the wonderful expressions of my two panelists this is the future of mobility and manufacturing a special edition series of coffee break with game changers radio i am Bonnie Dgram here today with Michael Larner at ABI Research and Ankit Sharma at SAP and we're talking about the concept of servitization i've been told to say a long i hey, servitization or industrial manufacturers, fascinating concept. So, Michael, we're up to the part of the show officially where we have. I have asked you both to send me an opening quote that, on the surface, has absolutely nothing to do with the topic, and I'm going to read a little bit about the background of the source, or I call the attribution, and ask you to tell us very briefly how you picked the quote. So, the quote you selected is one of our favorites, and you said it was from Abraham Lincoln. Not quite. I, uh, my listeners, know I use quoteinvestigator.com as my quote quote-unquote, Bible. Nobody take offense at that. It's not a religious concept. And according to that, uh, Alan Kay said this in 1971. An Atari ad said it, wrote it in 1982. The director of the movie Tron, a gentleman named Steven Lisberger, said it in 1982. And Peter Drucker, of course, said it in 1986. Here's the quote. The best way to predict the future is to create it. Michael, who's creating what future is it, and and who is who is doing all of this? So tell me how you picked this quote, please.
2: Um, I think what resonated me with that quote, albeit uh, from a diff- an incorrect source, and I sh- should apologise. Um, <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> I go back to uh, not a good analyst. Going to it, should go to his sources and get the get the fact check better. It's but fine. Anyway, uh,
1: Makes it's it more really... fun. <laughs> Makes it more fun this way. <laughs>
2: um, It resonates with me because we talked already about the status quo and how you, and there's a lot of uncertainty out there in the marketplace as we can all um, think about as we go about our day-to-day lives. But um, if you're not trying to predict the future but not creating it, it's more about then taking that entrepreneurial mindset, almost saying, okay, that's the status quo almost ignoring it, having the vision, having the courage, being a risk-taker to shape in the future and bending the future to what you want it to be and what you think is important. So I I'm think here is that people like um, um, Henry Ford saying, OK, people are using horse and cart. That, that's working perfectly well at the moment. I've got a better idea of doing something. Let's. i got this four-wheeled, ve- four-wheeled vehicle, and um, we can see if we can make something of that to make a future out of that. Similarly." Um, the thought that, um, oh, they'll never have PCs, laptops, in, in homes. They're always just going to be an industrial device for processing information. Now we've got them all in our homes, and now even more processing power in these little devices that we can fit in our pockets, and that's people t- taking, the, taking the risk, investing in the future, having a view in terms of what the future can be, and creating it. In, a, in other words, not being reactive, but being proactive. And I think that's where we're talking about earlier about servitization. So imagining a new way of doing business and a new way, not just manufacturing, but how manufacturers operate going forward.
1: Thank you. I love, we love the quote and it has floated around for so long and there are about five variations on it and it's always nice to see it. And it doesn't really matter who said it, it's true, Michael. So there, so (laughs) thank you for bringing it to us. Don't worry about the attribution. This is, we, we give you a pass on this one because we love the quote. Uh, Ankit has sent a quote that has a definite attribution. It's a quote from Haruki Murakami, and the book is called Norwegian Wood. I will not attempt to read it in Japanese. Uh, He was a Japanese author, and let's see, I don't have his dates of living, but the novel is a nostalgic story of loss and burgeoning life. I'll just say that, we're not gonna use the word. It's told from the first person perspective of Toru Watanabe, Who looks back on his days as a college student living in Tokyo? Through his reminiscences, readers see him develop relationships with two very different women, the beautiful yet emotionally troubled Naoko and the outgoing lively Midora. The novel is set in the late 1960s, Tokyo, during a period when Japanese students, like those of many other countries, were protesting against the established order. And the quote is If you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think. What everyone else is thinking. Wow, Ankit, this is th- this is a new author to me, and I understand you've read a lot of his other books, and and this is one you're going to tell us. How in the world did you find this quote? Talk to me.
3: It, it's very interesting, Bonnie. You know, I'm a big fan of Murakami. Not that I've read like all of his work, but I'm on my fourth, uh, you know, of of his books. And uh, interestingly, I have not read Norwegian Wood, but that was like one of his most highly rated. Uh, books, so I'm gonna do that. Uh, it's just that I keep scouting for a Murakami quotes for one thing or the other. You know, I, I tend to use his quotes in my own presentations, and this one really, you know, mm-hmm. stood apart. Um, um, and I'm, what I what I really like about uh, Murakami is that he writes in such simple manner about ordinary lives of people, uh, but still he's able to convey such deep meanings. Um, so that's about Murakami, but I'll come back to uh, why did I choose this quote? Yes. Uh, for me, it really alludes to the threat of commoditization that exists in the industrial manufacturing space right now. And, and how manufacturers really need to start reading different books, so to speak, or in other words, start looking at different ways to differentiate themselves from their competitors. Um, I remember uh, one of the discussions I had with the head of services of, a uh, big food and beverage equipment manufacturer uh, when he told me that there are so many Me Too products right now that exist in the market, right? Mm-hmm. And and their current leadership position is threatened because of that intense competition that exists. Um, and clearly nobody wants to be a commodity uh, because it's really not an attractive business then, you know, your, your profit margins are low and whatnot. So, so... What I really want to say is that leaders are really exploring different avenues. Uh, In some cases, it's services that what we are talking about here, and uh, they're looking to expand their offerings beyond what they have traditionally sold. Um, But like any new venture, there are a lot of challenges, even with those challenges, I think the manufacturers still need to forge ahead they still need to explore these new spaces and i agree with uh, what um, michael said you know they have to be entrepreneurial they have always been entrepreneurial but mm-hmm. you know nothing should prevent them from really exploring further and you know in a way reading a different book to really differentiate themselves mm-hmm.
1: Thank you very much both very very thoughtful quotes so what we're hearing is don't follow the pack lead the pack break out from the pack if everybody's doing it and even if a company is late to the servitization servitization model Think about doing it your own way. Very interesting. Now it's time to go through the discussion statements. My panelists spent a lot of time creating statements to help us guide this part of the roundtable. And Michael, I'm looking at your first one. I think we've already covered it, but you have some examples. So would you like me to do... So let's do number one. So what's going to happen is I'll read a little bit from Michael's statement. And Michael will spend about two, two and a half minutes explaining it, expanding it. He's got some good use cases here. And then I'll ask Ankit Sharma to to comment, to agree or disagree, if you have anything to add, then I'll pick a statement from Ankit's list and I'll read that. And then Ankit will lead that part of the discussion and we'll go back and forth and we'll just keep going. So we don't take breaks on this show. It's too good, too good to take a break. We'll listen to music later. Okay. So here's what Michael Larna said to me before the show. He said, to embrace servitization, manufacturers will need to reimagine their business models, which we already established when we opened the show. So let me give one example, and then I'll ask you to give some more, Michael. One example sure. he provides is Cone Cranes, that's K-O-N-E-C-R-A-N-E-S, wants to sell weightlifting rather than cranes. Interesting. Michael, tell us more, please. Yes,
2: yeah, it's, it's, it struck me. I was, one of the examples actually one of my colleagues has um, uncovered, and it's like you think, well, that business has been going on for um, however long a crane's been in existence really and um, so they've had been muddling along quite nicely so sort of saying turning up building sites and, and supplying it with cranes but now it's actually they're not fundamentally um, delivering that the service they're delivering is lifting items mm-hmm. to other parts of the building site or the construction site mm-hmm. and it's interesting that they are now just really rebranding reconsidering their core offering and that's its an actual service as opposed to the piece of equipment that actually is then turning up on these building sites. And I thought, how do you actually then, what is interesting to me is not just that customer proposition is how acceptable that is to the construction firm. Also, how do you actually then price it? How you, it's quite, in that sense, I think it's quite tangible because you just, in terms of, do you do it on number of lifts, number of staff on site? Do you dis- distinguish between things like what's actually being carried by the crane? And if it's like a rare material or valuable material, do you have to price it accordingly? Or you just do it simply on a traditional, more time and materials basis. I mean, there's some risks in these sort of models where you can actually start confusing the customer. I want to buy a crane. I want to hire a crane. I don't I just want it, I want it for two days. I don't need I don't know how much I'm going to be lifting and, and so forth. So I think there's a sort of risk sometimes. It, mm-hmm. some comes and you might get a bit too early on this sort of ideas and We'll start seeing people pushing back, and they won't be so successful and it will sort of stick to what you 're good at and stick and keep the customer on board um, One other example I think is really interesting I think it encapsulates um, the direction of travel that we 've been talking about already is some work that um a woodworking company, quite nondescript um, in terms of an industry, not most uh, high profile of industries. It's a company called BISA, B I E S S E. And they're working, and that's when you get the apl- application of technology firms getting involved with some of these manufacturers, and this one being Accenture. And what they've been working with them is is to, instead of just inst- um, people work um, selling them machines, the machine maybe has a breakdown, they come out and fix it. That's your sort of traditional model. Now we're going to get to the stage where these actually is saying to themselves, we'll actually install sensors within our machines. That's actually collecting data. It's also helping that company saying to their customers, we expect that you'd need a service in the next two weeks because the the machine will actually is risking breaking down because it's working at full throttle. So instead of risking the the, um, loss of production because it has an accidental breakdown, we're actually offering a service now where we actually proactively servicing your your machine, coming in at a scheduled time. So you schedule the downtime and then have no immediate inter- no immediate um, surprises in your production. So that's actually where it's a blend of costing it in terms of heart machinery and then service on top. Much like you get in the IT industry. So you're selling hardware kit. That's often in the mm-hmm. IT world, obviously, a loss leader. But then you're adding the services and the support on top. And that's where the margin comes from. And that's really where we're seeing in the manufacturing world a lot more direction travel in this theme of servitization and just one final point and is um, the really the core manufacturer one of the core manufacturers being bosch and taking this a step further is they've announced in by 2025 artificial intelligence will be included in all of their new products putting them ahead of the competition to ankit's point about creating margin creating leadership in the in the process so really Going back to the topic of servitization, really, re- our examples here, imagining different business models, still doing the core product, still providing machines, still providing um, cranes and and the like, but really adding extra value, serving the customer, having an ongoing relationship with that customer.
1: Thank you, Michael. Interesting, interesting how the customers are receiving this. Yes, finally. Now we know what we're really buying, what we're really subscribing to. We know we're getting the benefits rather than just a a piece of something sitting there. Thank you. Ankit, please join us. I I don't want to say agree or disagree because I know you agree. You might have some other examples. Ankit, please join us and, and add something you'd like to say.
3: Sure. Um, I think there were a lot of interesting points and a lot of threads that I can pick mm-hmm. from what Michael said. But let me uh, converge on to um, one of my conversations that I had with uh, the CEO of Tyson Group, uh about a year back. Um, and, it, you know, obviously every company wants to get into the service space. You know, they want to add value added service beyond just the capital equipment that we have established. Uh, but I, what I really uh, liked about what he said is that now that they're collecting so much data from the equipment because of all the sensors that they have put in, the next phase of growth would really come from unlocking that one key insight, right? That can really generate so much value for the offering company as well as to their customers. And the example could be as simple as what if you were able to predict well in advance when there could be a potential breakdown. Mm-hmm. You save enormous amount of money on the downtime, right? And that's a big value add. So, so I, I think I related, relate to it so much because you know, there is a huge deluge of data and you got to somehow monetize that data, somehow churn that data to really unlock these valuable insights. And those insights could then be offered as a service. And I think that's where the customers, customer, you know, they will see a lot of value and it will make sense uh, to really commercialize these new business models.
1: It sounds like an aha moment all around from the the point of... Conception, inception at the Indian manufacturers level, down to the customer and even their customer. Thank you both. Good, good round. Ankit, I'm looking at your statements. Um, I think I'm going to go to number two. You say there is a shift happening across industries. The consumers of the world are moving from ownership to subscription. We mentioned subscription briefly, but I think we should get into a little bit more. You say Lyft, L-I-F-T. We know CEO Logan Green mentioned subscription plans were the future of his company back in March. He said, we're going to move the entire industry from one based on ownership to one based on subscription. Ankit, why don't you expand this for us? Let's get into a conversation and then we will ask Michael to chime in. Go ahead, Ankit.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is an interesting one. And Mm -hmm. generally what I do, I try to fall back upon what I see myself as a consumer of a lot of services. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you all try to count on our fingers, the number of subscriptions that we have Netflix, Amazon Prime, you know, the media subscriptions and then there are print subscriptions and there are uh, even uh, services like um, Zipcar. You know, I have a subscription to that. So I don't own a car. I own a Zipcar, you know, that's a subscription. So I think uh, there is a lot of um, uh, you know ideas that we can take from the B2C world to the B2B world and that's actually happening right now. More and more companies are thinking about subscription oriented business models. Uh, Michael took some examples about crane manufacturers. We have Hilti offering holes as a service. We have Briggs and Stratton offering landscaping as a service, Bonnie. <laughs> you remember we talked about it. Yes. Um, and, and obviously, we have some front-runner companies like Rolls-Royce, uh, you know, which was really the pioneer, the front-runner in offering things like those. Um, but I, I think what I really want to bring here is the, uh, you know, the, if you look at the current context, especially, you know, whatever happened with COVID. Mm-hmm. And, and let me uh, give you a concrete example for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Motors right now is at a, return on capital employed you know one of the key metrics that a lot of shareholders watch they are at a four percent roce compared to eight percent a couple of years back and why is this happening this is happening because a lot of fixed assets that they have bought right for which they have paid upfront, it's sitting idle because the demand is down Uh, you know uh, there's not much economic activity happening therefore you know Companies like GM will now start expecting their equipment providers to start sharing the business risk and start offering subscription-oriented business models to them, you know? So, so I think that's a shift that I'm seeing is happening. And as we go further, as we get into the recovery phase of this, uh, you know, COVID uh, pandemic, I think we'll see more and more of such business models coming into fruition.
1: Thank you, Ankit. Michael, you want to say something?
2: Yes, I do, Um, just to pick up on the idea of um, the quotes from the CEO of Lyft is um, I'm thinking here there's still in the automotive world um, there is going to be a divide in my opinion between those who still resolutely want to still own a car rather than it being like a mobility as a service type proposition that uh, the gentleman at uh, Lyft will be wanting to propose and I think that does resonate and come through in the manufacturing world because I'm not so sure a factory owner Mm. considers that he or she is hiring or subscribing to a piece of machinery. They want it's their machine. Mm -hmm. They want it to produce their goods and their ownership. And I'm not sure it's going to come through too strongly. This is where we might get people coming up with business models which don't really fit the manufacturing world. And I just add another point as well is when you think about software Mm. and software as a service, you have a subscription. Mm -hmm. and it automatically upgrades and you get the latest version of that piece of software that works well in the intangible digital world but going back to the factory floor it's not so easy to physically upgrade a piece of machinery every six to twelve months Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: I, I sometimes think you can be enthusiastic about the servitization model I think it's really great in terms of orientating yourself around um, the demands of the customer and we've talked about and touched on customer's customer but when it comes to some of these business models I don't necessarily think an as-a-service type model will necessarily work if I think about sort of like um, a manufacturing plant necessarily. Ankit. All right Uh, uh,
3: Michael great point and that really brings me um, to one of the things that we internally discuss with customers a lot. First of all we also need to clarify the nomenclature behind yes. these advanced service business models, right? Some of them say equipment as a service, some yes. of them say outcome based business models, and some mm-hmm. of them say subscription business models, right? And and it's very really counterintuitive to think about subscription business models on a plant floor. You know, we are talking about B2B, you know, hardcore manufacturing. Um, so, so I think that that's one clarification that we really need to have. We really need to go to the crux of what is, in the offering, yeah. And if if you look at the offering, even subscription-based offering could essentially be a equipment as a service offering, you know. So uh, that that's one point I just wanted to. But clarify. then as,
2: I would mm. also add just with that idea, the OEM really has to be transparent with the client about what's coming next and what's going to be in mm-hmm. order for me to sign up to let's say a 100%. two three year time frame. And I I don't know so they they want to be actually disclose that type of information to a customer necessarily because of this sort of um, IP protection type of perception.
3: Yeah. A- and you're right. You know what, uh, when, we, when our customers offer these services to their customers, their customers are asking for, I want to know, am I gaining or am I losing?
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Yes. And and what? I want to chime in here. Michael's second statement, which I was going to probably uh, pass because you're bringing it up. But Michael, just for the sake of you wrote it, he said, in order to bring servitization to fruition, knowing your customer and customer's customer will be critical. That's what you're talking about, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Anything else you want to cover on this, either of you? Because I'm going to move on to statement number three from Michael. Are we good? Good discussion. See what Zoom does for us? I can see my panelists instead of, okay, you talk for two and a half minutes, and you talk for two and a half minutes, and I'm moving on. I get to see uh, uh, either a hand goes up, call me next, or a nod. Anki looked at me like, I want to say something. And then, Michael, I saw the eyebrows go in another, (laughs) I want to say something. So it's a a real roundtable. I appreciate both of you. So let's go to statement number three, Michael. I want to cover a little bit more here. We have about 20 minutes left. So uh, you say manufacturers need to have a digital thread In order to embrace change, and you say design and engineering teams need to have the tools to accommodate changes in the market, often said that manufacturing now runs on data, but more than an empty statement when considering digital twins. I love to bring up digital twins. I think, who who are the twins and what do they look like and where do they come from and what TV show? I'm I'm teasing, of course. So, Talk to me about digital thread and digital twins, Michael, and then we'll get Ankit to join us. Go ahead.
2: Super. Um, yeah, it's a really hot topic at the moment. What we're seeing in the marketplace. Um, the reason being is if you take the concept of digital thread first of all, so it's everything information coming into the organisation, be that from all angles. So that's from their suppliers, from raw materials, right the way through to the operations, and then coming in from um, both the customers' uh, interactions. So even like the CRM system, but also then the finance system. So really collating all the data, all the operational data, so you've got in a single application a a view end to end of how your manufacturing plant or operations are running and could run. And I think what's important about the digital twin aspect is it's not only an, um, an application for consolidation and collection, it's then it enables the users, the plant managers, the senior managers to start experimenting. So what do we do if we, have a different change in our supply chain. And I think we can all think of examples of that that's happened Mm -hmm. in the last few months. What happens if the customer changes their requirements? And then you can really, with that digital twin, you're basically creating a virtual factory floor, a virtual production line, where you can start making those changes, but not actually at, at less risk, obviously, than actually tweaking it with the staff on the factory floor. You can actually come up with some experiments you don't have to pull the production line down. You can do it in run in parallel whilst the production line is still running, and then make those changes, make those decisions, and then go onwards and upwards, as it were.
1: Ankit, agree, disagree, anything in between? Talk to me.
3: I think I want to expand on that, yeah. um, uh, especially how can we approach uh, the entire paradigm of the digital twin? Um, you know, mm-hmm. at least what I've seen. Um, once we establish this foundation, a digital thread, like Michael, you mentioned, you know, what can we do beyond establishing that thread? So at least what I've seen is, um, uh, you know, starting with a very simple optimization processes, like can you do a certain manufacturing uh, uh, operation better, depending on the kind of output that you see, I, I, and and just to expand on to that a bit more is you can actually run a lot of simulation models and i think michael that's what you were referring to right yep. uh, you can test a lot of different inputs to that digital twin and see how the product that you're manufacturing will react to a real life food you know in the real life and and depending on that you can make a lot of tweaks to the initial design uh, and further on into the manufacturing process so that the final physical asset that you have with your customers behaves uh, in the best way possible, you know.
1: I'm going to ask both, Michael, I know you want to say something. I'm going to ask each of you to to tell us, your definition of digital twin, is it a mirror system? Is it something you do in development of a new piece of equipment? Is it something you do when it's already been running a couple of years? Do you run a, a, a full simulation? Do you pick on certain things you think are not working well enough and run it in parallel where it won't hurt anybody, it won't, ha- won't have a, a negative outcome, if you will? How do we define a digital twin specifically for what we're talking about industrial equipment, for example?
2: in in the case of just a single piece it's making a digitized version of a piece of equipment so therefore you can then run it in parallel understand how it's operating understand what the sort of dependencies are and I think that's the important piece Mm -hmm. Um, what I was just going to add from the previous uh, comment was I'm not convinced that uh, digital twins is for everybody I think it does require in terms of the manufacturer, a level of maturity in terms of their data management, getting all the ducks in a row, if you like, in terms of all their applications. Yeah. And I think sometimes it's one of a uh, an application that's more suited to a more mature manufacturer or a, a manufacturer working on a bigger scale rather than, say, a manufacturer's got two machines and has been in, in business for 20 years and they're quite happy with how things are going. I think it's it requires... a um, more staff that are actually data savvy as well as operational savvy as well mm-hmm. but sorry bonnie is is to my mind it's basically a virtual um uh, component of what you're actually trying to achieve be it a production line or a piece of machinery okay
1: yeah. anything yeah. you want to add to that definition
3: yeah so so i think the definition of digital twins can get very technical so let me break it down mm-hmm. uh, if you look at an asset or let's say a simple piece of equipment. These days, it's made up of three key components. It will have some mechanical parts, it will have some electronics part, and it will have some software part, right? Um, I think when we are talking about a digital representation of this physical asset, what we are essentially talking about a digital representation of the engineering structure, You know how each and every component, be it mechanical, electronic, or software interact and not just interact what are they made of you know what is their comp- composition like we are what we are human bodies like water and you know carbon and whatnot so we need to understand what that uh, physical equipment is made of, made of and then uh, like Michael, point, uh, Michael pointed out uh, it's not just about engineering structures during the design phase we can further extend it to a digital representation of even the entire manufacturing line. You know, the different mm-hmm. operations, uh, physical operations, digitally represented. Uh, so I think that's, that's how I see uh, digital twin broken down in the design phase, in the manufacturing phase, and then further on using what we have designed and manufactured, uh, using um, that representation to see how the asset is behaving in the real world space, which is the operation
1: space. Thank you both. I appreciate the expansion of the definition. I just want to make sure our listeners know exactly what you're talking about. And that (laughs) helped. So statement number four, Ankit Sharma, this looks interesting. And we've got to see how much time. We have about 15 minutes left. And we will take about four minutes at the end for your crystal ball prediction. So. Ankit told me before the show, he said, servitization is inherently disruptive for the core business offerings of the incumbents. Therefore, they should ensure they don't lose focus of their core business model. This sounds like almost an oxymoron, uh, Ankit. This sounds like a push-me-pull-you or a challenge. How, how closely can you stay to your core but still add this, add the servitization model and still keep your, your mainstream going of, of, uh, of customers, of income, revenue, so, how do you balance that, Ankit? Tell us more, please.
3: I think the short answer to this—it's uh, not really an answer, but a short, uh, you know, discussion point—would be that if you were to approach uh, new disruptive innovation, it's all—it always makes sense to do it outside of your core business. Right. You don't mm-hmm. want to disturb your core business because apparently that is still the cash cow and mm-hmm. while you are still testing out the new business model. So at least what we see in the market and what really the disruptive theory says is it always makes sense to establish a new business unit. Right. When mm-hmm. I speak to customers, they are thinking about a company within a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, These new business model entities will have their own decision-making powers. Uh, they will have their own set of resources to rely on. They will have people with fresh thinking who do not have the baggage of the core business, right? But at the same time, they will rely on the core business to really give them the big GTM push. You know, mm-hmm. suppose if we want to reach out to the new customers, the core business customers could be, you know, those customers who this new business model could reach out to just to test and pilot, right? And once you see some sort of traction, and once you see some sort of profitability coming in, I think that's when you really push this forward uh, for scale. So I I think what I really meant was, is uh, we really need to think about setting the new disruptive units separately from the core business. Um, Yeah.
1: Ankit, are we talking about an incubator? Are we talking about NDAs for any customer or prospect who was invited in to be part of the testing of, of whatever it is? Are we talking about an autonomous unit, a spinoff? Is it secret? Is it in an underground bunker, if you will? I'm being a little dramatic here. But my point is, if if it's something that isn't proven yet, that you don't want to risk the core business income flow, the revenue, but you want to have this excitement of, look what we're thinking about. Do you make it public? Do you keep it secret? Just give us a little more. Then I'll get Michael to chime in with his point of view on this.
3: I think you absolutely make it public, and you reach out to the new customers with full force. And I just want to bring one example out. I may Please. not be absolutely accurate on the timelines here, but I remember in nineteen sixties there were so many um, stores like Macy's. You know, Dayton Hudson was like Macy's, like mega departmental stores, and then suddenly there was this shift happening towards this low cost stores coming in, right? And that's when Dayton Hudson thought. That while we will continue with our business model of, you know, the age old department stores, mm-hmm. we will also create something called Target, right? Separately as a separate business unit. And, you know, you know, the rest is history, how Target has really grown
1: yes.
3: and Dayton Hudson, the core business, it started deteriorating a little bit, uh, probably did not work too much, but because of how they created a new business unit separately and really let it go, let it flow. Uh, how they were able to survive such a big duration period.
1: I love it. And by the way, where I come from in New York, we call it Tarjay.
3: Tarjay, okay.
1: <laughs> and in pennies was jacques It wasn't because <laughs> people would say, I'm going to Penny's, I'm going to Tarjay, because they wouldn't want their neighbors to think, never mind, it's just <laughs> just, a, just a thang Michael, talk to us. What do you think about this disruption of the core? Where do you put your incubating thoughts—public, private, secret, underground, NDAs? What do you do?
2: Well, um, I don't think you necessarily put it on a like a Bond villain on a volcanic island, but um, I think what it does need is—it's obviously it's a component of um, change management, and I think what you need to have at sort of board level is a unified view that this is the way the company is going to go. Because the risk of this is you have two in two go-to-market engagements running in parallel and in, and in some respects obviously competing with one another. So I think what the if you're going to change up your business model, yes, I think you should have it running like an innovation center or an incubator, but you have to be clear to both the traditional and the new what the rules of engagement are because you just destroy value both sides if you start confusing a group of customers with contradictory messages. Mm-hmm. And I think that requires, what well, I said at the uh, top there, it requires leadership from the board members or and the VPs, operations and all the sales people that um, this is the way the market is going, this is the way we want to do it. and But they, it shouldn't be jeopardized by the um, the day-to-day sales force. That, that's where these things can come across, I think.
1: Interesting. I can. Anything you want to add to that? I want to squeeze in one more point before we go to predictions. Yeah, right.
3: I, I, I'm just getting reminded of some amazing uh, <laughs> quotes that I recently <laughs> learned. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and uh, this is a quote by the CEO of uh, EMC. You know, they make these storage devices and big ones. Uh, and he says, obviously, he said this in the context of acquisitions, but we can extrapolate it to innovation. So what he says is that if you, if you as a core business, try to hug the new innovation or acquisitions too tightly, it's possible that you will make them die. Yeah. So so it's obviously very important for companies to really give a free space for the new innovations to breathe and to try their own stuff.
1: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the uh, the honesty, the authenticity of all of your your commentary. We're not trying to clean everything up for the audience. We want this to be reality. What what do the two of you see in your work, in your interactions with companies around the world? What what is it really all about? And that's why we talk about the the good parts and the not so good parts, the risk and the and the forward motion. So thank you, Michael. I want to squeeze in one more comment here, statement number four. I think this is very reflective of where we are with COVID now, and with this dipping our toes in the water of recovery, whether it's personal, professional, industrial, wherever you are. Statement number four Michael Larner sent me says, fewer staff allowed in facilities, aha, is driving the adoption of servitization models. Manufacturers looking to reduce the number of staff physically present in their facilities in order to facilitate social distancing. Why don't you briefly, uh, we're at 50 minutes. We have seven minutes till the end of the show. I want to give you each 60 seconds for prediction. So Michael, take about a minute and a half of this and Ankit respond and then we'll do prediction each. Michael. Yes.
2: I think this continues um, a lot of what we talked about in terms of servitization. So if you, you can't have as many, probably half the number of staff in, in some contexts are allowed in the facilities now because of social distancing, but you still got um, the factory floor to run. You still got customers who expect, um, expect their products on time and on, in some respects an increased volume. So how do you do it? You have to work with your partners. So here the OEMs are now able to with those investments assuming they've done their investments in things like the sensors, they can actually do that predictive maintenance that break fix is done much more on a scheduled basis you're taking problems your service here is you're taking the problem the risk of the problem away from the manufacturer they can then concentrate on their day-to-day operations and so and there's that chart, isn't it, that often you see, so what's driving digital transformation now? It's not internal. It's not inventions. It's it's COVID-19. It's actually driving digital transformation. And yeah. now it's almost coming a cliche already in about in two months. But uh, I think that's what's again, will be um, a driver for these type of uh, engagements with clients because you are taking the problem away from them with this sort mm-hmm. of servitization type model.
1: Thank you. Ankit, ch- comments on this, and then Michael, get your prediction ready, please. Ankit. Uh,
3: Uh, Yeah, just a one small comment uh, to what Michael mentioned about partner ecosystem, and they will actually play a very important role during this time. And I'm reminded of some of our OEMs who really rely on huge network of partners that they have to deliver the services that their customers really want. So,
1: yeah, short one. Okay, thank you very much. Michael Larner, ABI Research, look into the crystal ball, steal yourself, ground yourself and look Mm. in. The future could be five minutes after the show is over. By the way, we are live. It is, I don't know what month or year it is. It's July Uh, 7th, July 7th, 2020, there you go. Can't wait for the end of this year. Michael, any time in the future, tell us how far out you want to look and what do you see that will change? Will we change the word servidization? Will we change it to Larner or Sharma? I don't know. And and will this be something that that every industrial manufacturer knows they have to embrace? Talk to me. Prediction, 90 seconds, they're all yours.
2: Yeah, I think one thing that sort of comes through in a lot of these – back in our conversations this afternoon, this morning, is I think what has to change for this to contribute is another mm. C word, not just the customer, but actually it's more about internal culture has to change in a lot of these mm. OEM providers. And it has to come from the board, as I said, but it can't just be a new way for the finance team to make more money or a new way to um, having new ways to attribute cost. So I think It won't be appreciated by the sort of, shall I say, the mass ranks in OEMs if it just looks like a fluffy piece of marketing. Mm -hmm. And I'm—I've been working in this industry for 25 years. I sell these great machines. Don't start talking to me how to do my job properly. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think what the challenge is in my crystal ball is I think some companies will do it really well, and there will be people who really. As, as everything, when we, we look at fight, there will be winners and losers, and I think the companies that can, might be a bit crass about this, and as I said earlier about the Cranes example, where they come up with some metrics which just not readily understood, they're much more um, internal focused. I think there will be some mistakes made, but I then on the optimistic side, I think some people will embrace it and will be making some good margin from doing this type of operation.
1: Love the optimism, Ankit Sharma. You have 90 seconds, maybe a little bit more. Michael was so concise. Thank you. Go ahead, Ankit.
3: All right. Great. So, um, so predictions. Hmm. So I clearly see servitization will play a very important role going forward in most of the company's strategy. And I always take this example of Caterpillar. They almost double their forecast of the revenue that they will generate out of service business from $14 billion to $28 billion in a matter of 10 years. I think that speaks a lot to the change that we are going to see in the industry. There will be more and more service focus. Now while there will be service focus, not everyone would move to the higher end of the service maturity chart, which is to say, not everyone will start with subscription or outcome-based business model or equipment as a service model, because there is a long way for customers to reach there. Um, Obviously, the front runners will set the tone um, and there will be followers. But I think clearly there will be starting points. Uh, Obviously, most of the manufacturers already sell tools, support, you know, for their equipment, uh, but they will slowly start embedding a lot of software capabilities in their equipment and selling software on top of your equipment. I think it's easier implementation compared to taking the ownership of the entire plant, you know, and promising Mm -hmm. them the outcomes. So I think there will be a move towards more and more software uh, added, added services on top of the capital equipment. So in a way, their service, you know, just uh, kind of summarizing service will continue to play an important role in the strategy. Uh, and secondly, software will uh, be the starting points to really bring that new uh, area of growth.
1: Thank you very much. And I'm going to propose that we'll get rid of the word servitization and call it just tization. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll just call it the Tization model and everybody will understand what that is because they will have listened to this show and they will have listened to Michael and listened to Anka and say, ah, Tization, we know what that is. It's just easier to say and it's a fun word. What can I say? I want to thank both of you. This has been I use the word delightful in a business sense. It's been delightful watching because we are on Zoom and I, we can see each other. Yay! Uh, it, it's been delightful watching the two of you think, how you think and how you speak and how you react and respond to the conversation that we're all having. And it's been a real pleasure. I want to do a shout-out to Judy Cubis and Ashwin Manapali at SAP for sponsoring the series and working so hard behind the scenes. Judy, this was a great topic, really, really great topic Whoever came up with it, thank you very much. I don't know if Ankit was part of that. I want to do a shout-out to Aaron and the Business Channel team at World Talk Radio Voice America, and I want to do a shout-out to Deborah Petrara, always at ABI Research. Thank you for working with Michael, and you know the drill here on Game Changers Radio. So here's my call to action, and it's an interesting one. Fasten your seatbelt. This series used to be the future of cars, and that really applied. Now it's mobility manufacturing. So whatever you're driving, however you're mobilizing yourself from room to room, you know, there's a traffic light between the kitchen and the living room these days, I hear, to keep you from going to the refrigerator so much. That's another show. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? And I still say my car is getting three months to the gallon. I hope yours is doing as well. <laughs> yes, go out and be a game changer today, just like Michael Larner at ABI Research, just like Deborah Pretara at ABI Research, just like Ankit Sharma at SAP and Judy Cubas at SAP. And everybody, thank you so much for listening. It's been a joy. We hope we have inspired educated enlightened and just given you something to look forward to Bonnie D Graham signing off everybody wave bye bye bye
0: Thanks again for tuning in to the Future of Mobility and Manufacturing with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.